All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 39 as we start this morning. Again, that's Luke chapter 5. We're going to read verses 27 through 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you've given it to us to, um, to reveal who you are to us, to teach us more about you, your plan to save us, your plan to send your son to redeem us from our sin. Uh, we pray that this morning, that as we look at your word together, that we would, would learn more in it about who you are uh, and who we are, and that uh, through this passage in Luke, that you would draw us more and more into our discipleship with Jesus, and that we would, we would follow him more and, and follow ourselves less. God, we pray that you would send your spirit to help us this morning to understand your word together, and that your spirit would would convict us and challenge us and apply it to our hearts and lives. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week, when we were in Luke, we saw Jesus having this conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. And as we continue through the Gospel of Luke for the next few chapters, this conflict is going to continue. It's going to get greater and greater and greater until it ultimately cultivates or culminates in Jesus going to the cross. So today, he's going to have more conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. There's really three things that happen in the passage this morning. The first thing is that Jesus calls Levi as one of his disciples. Then the Pharisees are going to complain about who Jesus spends time with. And then they're going to complain about what he does when he spends time with people. So it's going to be Jesus calling Levi and then the Pharisees complaining. And that's kind of what the next few passages are going to be like in Luke's gospel. It's going to be Jesus doing something and then the Pharisees complaining about it. So in this first little chunk, verses 27 and 28, we see Jesus calling Levi. So he's walking on along, he's doing his ministry. He sees Levi, this guy sitting at a tax booth, and he calls him to follow him. And so Levi gets up and follows Jesus. The first thing we should know about Levi is that Levi is the same guy as Matthew who wrote the first gospel. In Matthew's gospel, if we were to read this passage, he doesn't call him Levi, he calls him Matthew. And so the question we should ask about that is why are there two names? Why is it Levi and Matthew? And the reason why is that in the first century, most Jews had two names. They had one name that was Hebrew or Aramaic, and they had another name that was Greek 
or Latin, and that's what Levi slash Matthew has. His Hebrew name is Levi, and his Greek name is Matthew. And so in Luke's gospel, Luke calls him by his Hebrew name because he's a Hebrew. In Matthew's gospel, he calls himself by his Greek name, Matthew. But these are the same guy. Um, But what the highlight of this story is, is that Jesus calls Levi, and Levi immediately gets up and follows him. What this means is that Levi leaves behind his job, right? He's a tax collector. There's probably money on the table that he's been collecting as taxes at his tax booth. But as soon as Jesus says, hey, Levi, follow me, Levi gets up and leaves all of that behind to follow Jesus, which is incredible, right? Imagine just, you know, say you work at a bank and somebody comes in, they make a deposit and this big fat stack of cash is sitting on the counter and somebody comes in and they say, hey, you, follow me. And you decide, all right, I'm out. And you just leave all of that behind and follow this person that called you to follow them. That's what Jesus does and how Levi responds here. Uh, one of the reasons why I love this passage, even though it's just two verses, is because I have this, this painting on the wall of my office. Really, it's, it's not a painting. It's a print of a painting. But the painting is called The Calling of St. Matthew. And it's by this Italian guy named uh, Caravaggio. And this painting, the thing that I really like about it, is that it's, it pictures Matthew sitting in his tax booth and Jesus calling him. And they're in this room, which is really dark. And Jesus is, is kind of in the corner of the picture. And he's standing underneath a window. And this light is coming in the window. And it hits the faces of Matthew and all the people that are with him at the tax booth as they look at Jesus. So there's all these people. They're looking at Jesus. And their faces are lit up. And Jesus is pointing at Matthew. And Matthew is pointing at himself with a kind of a surprised look on his face, as if he's saying, like, you want me. And no one is looking at Matthew. Everybody is looking at Jesus. And I think that the way, like, that, that painting captures the response we see of Levi to Jesus in this passage, as he, you know, he follows him, and then immediately he throws this big party at his house for all of his friends, these people that were outcasts in society, these people that no one wanted and no one liked. Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew responds by bringing more people like himself to Christ. Uh, and I think that, for me, that the painting and, and this account just really captures how we should respond to Jesus, how we should feel about our discipleship to him. Because I think what happens more often than not is that we think that there's something worth looking at in us. Right? When we think about our, ourselves being disciples of Jesus, we might come up with a list of things. This is why Jesus called me. This is why I get to be his disciple. I have, I have these gifts. I have this knowledge. I have these habits. I have these things. There are, there are things in me that are worth looking at. And that's why Jesus came and he pointed to me. When really our attitude should, should be, and, and the Bible teaches us that there is nothing in us that caused God to call us. It's purely by his grace alone, his mercy alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing that we have to offer him. He called us and our response should be, you want me? to be your disciple. And that's how Levi responds. The next thing that happens in this passage is uh, he throws this huge party. All these people are at his house, these tax collectors, these other people reclining the table with them. And the Pharisees, they see this. The scribes and Pharisees also come to this party. They're the kind of the the world's first party poopers in this account. Uh, And they grumble at Jesus' disciples. They're, They're grumbling. And what they say is why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So first of all, they're putting these people in the same group, which, which isn't very nice. 
But who are they asking this question to? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're not, they're not asking Jesus. Luke tells us they're asking his disciples. But who are Jesus' disciples at this point? Well, there's Peter, the fisherman, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the fisherman, and John, his brother. And there's also this new disciple. What's his name again? Levi, or Matthew. And what's his job? He's a tax collector, right? So these guys walk up to a tax collector and they say, why do you eat with these horrible people that are tax collectors? This isn't, this isn't the best question, right? This, isn't, this is not how we want to do ministry. Um, the Pharisees are disparaging tax collectors. They're, they're lumping them in with sinners. They're saying, why do you associate with these kinds of people? And Jesus hears their question and he answers, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's saying healthy people don't need doctors, sick people do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying I'm spending time with these people because these are the people that need a savior. But what we need to recognize about what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying that the Pharisees don't need a savior. right? He's not saying they're righteous, you're righteous so you don't need me. These people aren't righteous, they do. Uh, Paul makes it clear in Romans 3 that there isn't anyone who's righteous apart from Christ. And so Jesus here isn't saying they're righteous. He's saying they think that they're righteous. They think that they're healthy. They think that they don't need a Savior. He hasn't come for those people. He's come for the people that know they need a Savior. That's why he's ministering to these people. That's why he's reaching out to them. The Pharisees think that they're better than the tax collectors. The Pharisees think that they're better than sinners. The Pharisees think that they're better than Jesus' disciples. The Pharisees think that they're better than Jesus. Jesus knows that that's not true. He came for those kinds of people. I think one thing that we should see here in this passage is Jesus and his disciples are criticized for hanging out with these kinds of people is that throughout Uh, the history of the church, Christians have been criticized for the people that they've chosen to associate with. Uh, Jesus, we see this throughout the gospel, right? He's criticized for the kind of people that he hangs out with. And so I think that, that we should see that as a mark of his disciples. And that we should ask ourselves, are we criticized for the kind of people that we spend time with? Um, And I think that this is a place where we have a lot to grow in as a church, right? Because if people looked at our community and they said, hey, why do you hang out with the people you hang out with? The answer is because they're just like me. We have similar interests. We're in a similar life stage. Our kids are similar ages. We, we, we like the same things. We like to talk to each other. We like to spend time together. We spend time with each other because it's fun. And we have at BC this great community But the problem with this great community is that we have a hard time bringing people that aren't like us into it. And that's not a good thing. That's not a healthy thing. That's us being like the scribes and Pharisees and not like Jesus and his disciples. And so we should be living lives that people look at us and they say, why do you hang out with those people? Whoever the tax collectors and sinners are in Hannibal, we should be looking for ways to spend time with those people so that people look at us, not and say, oh, those people are so great, but so they look for an explanation. The only explanation we have is that Jesus has called us to this. And we can share the good news of who he is and what he's done, how he's drawn us out of that uh, in order to spread the good news with other people. And so it's my hope that 
you would begin to pray and that we would begin to pray that God would grow us and grow our church in this way. That we wouldn't have an easy, rational uh, answer to why we spend time with one another. But that it would be hard to ex- harder to explain because it's something that God is doing by his spirit in us and through us. Um, the next little chunk, the Pharisees come and they ask another question. They're going to complain about something else. It's not just about who Jesus is spending time with. It's about, it's about what he's doing with those people when he spends time with them. It says the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, they fast. They offer prayers. So the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Uh, a few chapters later in Luke, Jesus is going to be called a glutton and a drunkard because he eats and he drinks. Uh, here they want to know, why aren't you fasting like we fast? Why don't you do what we do, Jesus? Why do you do something different? Jesus answers, can you make wedding guests fasts while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Here he's calling his disciples wedding guests. Um, and unfortunately, I think the, the ESV, we kind of we lose some stuff in translation here. There's, there's this phrase, this idiom behind wedding guests that to me helps us picture what it is Jesus is saying here in a helpful way. And so to explain kind of what I mean, if, if I was to say in English, right, uh, Scott and I take walks together, and Scott and I play catch, and Scott and I sit on the couch together, Scott is man's best friend. What is, what is Scott? He's a dog, right? All of you understand that man's best friend equals dog. But if I went and I said that to someone who's just learning English, they're going to think that Scott is a guy who's my friend because they don't understand yet that man's best friend is an idiom that means dog. In the same way, this phrase, the phrase behind wedding guests is actually sons of the bridal chamber. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples here. He's calling them sons of the bridal chamber. And the reason why I think it's important for us to know that instead of just seeing it as wedding guests, because Jesus is associating with his, his disciples with a very specific part of the wedding. Uh, and this is a place where the Bible's language is, is maybe a little more earthy than we're comfortable with. Uh, and, and maybe it's a great uh, just coincidence or, or providence that kids are not in service today. Uh, but the bridal chamber is the place where the marriage was consummated. And so the disciples, the, the groomsmen, were the people who kind of hung out outside of that room to verify that the marriage was indeed consummated. And so uh, by associating the wedding guests, the disciples, with that act, what Jesus is saying, he's saying that the disciples, his disciples, us, we should be so filled with joy, we should be so full of joy, we should be so unable to fast because we're celebrating the fact that Jesus has come to take his bride. Jesus has come to bring his kingdom. The Messiah has come. This new age has dawned. It's already begun. That's what they're celebrating. That's why they're filled with joy. That's why it would be inappropriate for them to fast. He says they will fast when he goes away, but right now he's here. And so we're celebrating that this marriage has begun with the lamb. He has come to take his bride, and we should be filled with joy. That's what's happening in this passage. That's what he's answering to the Pharisees. Then he tells them this parable to kind of unpack that and to show them how they have missed it. He says, no one takes a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new And the piece from the new will not match the old. 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins will be spilled, and the, or, and the wine will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So if you have an old garment that has a hole in it, and you cut a piece from a new garment to patch it on there, you do two things. Number one, you ruin the new garment because you cut it up, and you ruin the old garment because what's going to happen when you wash the old garment with the new patch is the new patch is going to shrink and pull away from the old garment. So you're left in the same place you were in the first place. If you take new wine, which is unfermented wine, and you put it in old wineskins that have lost their stretchiness, what's going to happen is when that new wine ferments, it's going to output CO2, carbon dioxide, and that's going to cause those wineskins to swell, and then those wineskins are going to explode, and they'll be ruined, and the wine will be all over the ground, so it's ruined too. What Jesus is saying with these images is that the old is incompatible with the new. They can't mix. The old, in this case, is the Pharisees and their way of religion, the old covenant and these man-made restrictions that they've put on top of it. The new is what Jesus is doing, the good news of the gospel. And he's saying those two cannot mix. Those two are incompatible. They don't go together. In the very end, he says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And here's where the analogy kind of breaks down, right? Because generally speaking, old wine is better than new wine. Uh, But what he's saying here is that the Pharisees, they've had the old wine, and they don't want anything to do with the new. They're, they're satisfied. They're complacent with what they have. And they've chosen to reject Jesus and the new thing that he's doing. They've chosen to reject the good news of the gospel, the fact that the Messiah has come. So he's saying, in effect, that this conflict that he's having with the scribes and Pharisees is going to continue and continue and continue. Because what they have, the old way of religion, is incompatible with this new thing that he's doing. And they have chosen to reject that And they're going to continue to reject it until ultimately they reject him and kill him. Jesus here in this passage is telling us that what he's bringing, this new covenant, this new kingdom that has come with him as the Messiah, we can't fit it in with the old way of religion that the Jews have. One is going to replace the old. The new is going to replace the old. Jesus has come to bring this new thing, and that is what he's doing, and the Pharisees are going to keep rejecting it as they already have been. So for us today, I think that we should ask ourselves, right, how do, how do we respond to this, right? We're, we're, not, we're not scribes and Pharisees, uh, hopefully, right? We're his, we're his disciples. Um, but I think that we should recognize that there are times where in our discipleship to Jesus, we are more like the scribes and Pharisees than we are like his disciples. There are times where we want to cling to what is old instead of embracing the new, the way that Christ has for us. We want, right, our man-made restrictions and regulations. We want the things that we're comfortable with. We want the, the old things that we have, our, our comfort zones, right? The community we have with one another is comfortable. Thinking about bringing people into it that are very different than us doesn't sound like a fun thing. Right? As we've been considering this merger with Fifth Street, my biggest fear, one, one of my biggest fears, is that we will lose what we have with one another. That, that things will change in a way that I don't like or want. And, and some of that's a good thing, right? We want to preserve the good things that we have that Christ has given us by his grace. 
But then I also realized that the reason why Fifth Street is in the position that they're in is because they feel just like that. Right? They've been resistant to change. They've been afraid to lose what they have, and so they've stayed the same year after year after year after year, and it has hindered their ministry in the gospel. And like we're a really young church, and that hasn't happened to us yet. But if we just get content with the community that we have and continue to struggle to bring new people into it, we're going to get older together and end up in the same exact place they're in right now. And so I hope that whether we merge with Fifth Street or not, that God leads us by his spirit outside of our comfort zones, that he pushes us outside of the community that we're content with and the things that we're complacent in and draws us to follow him in new and difficult and scary ways by his spirit. I, I don't want to be like the scribes and Pharisees. I don't want to grumble when I don't get my way and things happen that I don't like or that you know, I wouldn't prefer. I want to not get my way more often so that God can sanctify me in new and more difficult ways. Uh, and so as we think about this passage, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, Jason's going to come in and, and just a minute and lead us in that. But I would encourage you to ask the Spirit to show you the ways in which you're clinging to the old wine. You're, you're failing to embrace the new thing that Christ wants to do in you, the way he has brought his kingdom, the way it's transforming you and us and our community and the way he wants to transform our city, the way in which you would rather things stay the same because it's easier and it's more comfortable for you. I pray that uh, he would send his spirit to cause us to see ourselves like Matthew saw himself, that we would not see reasons and come up with a list for why we are good disciples of Christ but that we would recognize the only reason why we're his followers is because he called us to follow him. That's all we have to offer is his call of us. Uh, let's pray together this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you came down here, that you, you left heaven and took on flesh, and that you invaded your creation with your kingdom. God, we pray that you would cause us to have joy at the realities of the gospel, even as we long for you to come back and bring them in their fullness. And to once and for all consummate your marriage with the church. God, we confess that we grumble more than we should. God, we pray that you would, would draw us outside of our complaining and outside of our complacency and draw us into obedience and, and following you on mission as we seek to, to spread your gospel and expand your kingdom in the city that you've placed us in. Jesus, I pray that you would make us, uh, give us a, a holy dissatisfaction with our community, that we would love one another well, uh, 
and be great friends with one another, but that that wouldn't prevent us from welcoming new people into the community you've given us. I pray that we would, uh, like we see you doing in the gospel, spend time with the people that no one wants to spend time with. That others might see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. That would be a pathway for the gospel to go forth in our city and, and through your church. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for, for dying in our place and paying our penalty. I pray that you would send your spirit to enable us to respond rightly to your word and rightly in worship and rightly as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.